So today's reading comes from Matthew 1, 18 to 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she found she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because where... Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home to be his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until they gave birth to a son and he named them Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone is waiting for something, someone, sometimes anticipating, sometimes agonising. We all have an expectation for what's to come. Even Jesus arrived with a wait. Although we turn a single page, 400 years of silence spanned the gap between the final prophecies we read in the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus. No prophet, no voice, no signs, no wonders. You can almost hear the questions, did God care? Had he vanished? Was he ever really there? Finally, with a single cry in a stable in Bethlehem, the silence was broken. The arrival of a baby born in the midst of darkness and despair was hope fulfilled, a miracle in motion. And the good news, in the same way it did 2,000 years ago, Advent brings with it the assurance that no matter what you're waiting on, God promises hope is on the way. Yeah, good. (laughs) Good to be in the room with each of you this afternoon. My name's Alex. I'm the lead minister here in Brisbane, and I've been here for four months, and just last week, Kath and I, my wife, were on holidays, <clears throat> and it was such a beautiful time. Um, it was nice to have a break, sit back, relax, reflect, pray, and think about all that's happened in literally the last four months. Um, there's new faces in our community um, that God's brought along. There's new stories that matter to God and that we get the privilege of hearing and sharing and gathering around. Um, So it's an absolute privilege to be the pastor here, and it's even more of a privilege just to open up the scriptures this afternoon. Um, When we were away, um, I was reading the biography um, of a guy named Eugene Peterson. Many of you all know the name Eugene Peterson. He's the guy who translated and paraphrased, um, in that order, um, the scriptures, Genesis through to Revelation, uh, and paraphrased uh, the scriptures in such a way that 
you know, one of the things we experience when we read the Bible is it just feels so foreign, so ancient, so distant from us. And he was like, can I create a paraphrase of the scriptures which themselves uh, can just be read by any average Joe, particularly in America? And he achieved it. He copped some flack for it, but he achieved it. A beautiful translation, a paraphrase of um, the scriptures. And one of the things that he loved doing, I found in this biography, um, actually, no, it wasn't a biography, but it was a, a sermon that I listened to later. Um, he loved telling stories to his grandchildren. They owned a home on a lake in Montana, Flathead Lake, and his grandchildren would often come and visit, and he'd often tell them troll stories. Um, and I think his family had a background in sort of Scandinavia, Norway, somewhere like that, and so troll stories were just part of their blood, part of their tradition. And so he's sitting there on the pontoon one afternoon with his grandson, and his grandson turns to him and says, Pop, Pop, tell me a troll story, but make sure I get into it. Tell me a troll story, but make sure I get into it. And it just got me thinking. You know, we celebrate the story of Christmas every year. And what does it mean to get into it? What does it mean to get into the Christmas story? Every year, Christmas comes and it goes. And I don't know about you, but usually I'm so busy, life is so chaotic, that I fail to center my attention and my affection and my adoration around what Christmas ultimately points to. And I've learned this sort of liberating and exciting fact in the last few years of my life, and it's this, that often what the rhythms that we inhabit with our lives evidence more what we believe than what we say with our mouth. And so this Christmas, what are the rhythms that we're stepping into? What are the deeds that we're doing? How are we spending our time this Christmas? I want you to imagine something. I do this experiment all the time with my wife, Kath, and she's like, this is the weirdest experiment, and I, I admit it's weird, but imagine, imagine that an alien came to planet Earth. You're welcome. <laughs> they came in December, and they have a commission from their home planet, and it's this, report back on what Christmas means to the average Aussie. Report back, but there's, there's a catch. They can't listen to what Aussies say about Christmas, and they especially can't listen to what Christians say about Christmas, they can only observe. What does the alien report back to their home planet? For me, being completely honest, I find it so easy to let in my heart just settle, to center my Christmas experience and my Christmas rhythm around things that are good but not God, things that are wonderful but not central, things that are peripheral. Um, I reckon they'd report on this. In Aussie culture, Christmas, you know, we feel this when the time comes, Christmas means annual leave, right? Like this time comes around, we start looking at our calendars and we're like, let's go, annual leave, it's coming up, I'm pumped. Or for those like me in the room, it means freaking out in December, realizing that you haven't booked in annual leave soon enough, or that you haven't booked in a decent enough holiday to make use of the annual leave that's really valuable to you. That's what Christmas usually means to a bunch of Aussies. For some people in Australia, particularly on the east coast of Australia, where it's about lifestyle, it's about the beach and barbecue and prawns and debating whether you get a ham or whether you get seafood or whether you go both, but then you have the question as to whether you cook a ham or you have a cold ham, and no one likes cold ham, right? but you debate it. Some amens? Awesome. For some people, Christmas means the blessing of family and the curse of family. This will be the first Christmas that I get to spend with my um, nieces, my three nieces, Ollie, Lucy, and Alia. 
And I'm just questioning, like, how soon do I lean into the awkward uncle thing, you know? Like, how soon before I become pitched as that? Open question. Don't claim that I'm that. For some people, Christmas means eating so much in December that the personalised Facebook ads that come around telling you of a gym membership that's discounted in January start to look really attractive. What would they report on? And for me, and for us, unless we're critical of basically cultural and market forces, Christmas would so easily be centred around hedonism, what can I enjoy, materialism, what can I take, and consumerism, what can I get. And there's a whole host of good things that those streams avail to us, but they're not central. Usually I'm a bit of a gentle preacher. Someone told me this recently and it was really encouraging. But let me say one thing really clearly today. Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our King. Jesus, the one that our hearts adore. Christmas is about nothing else. Everything else is peripheral, secondary, expendable. Christmas is about Jesus. And as the pastor of New Life Brisbane, I get the pleasure of telling us that and reminding us of that, and catching up our gaze and our attention in that sole fact that Christmas is about Jesus. Here's the question, what does it mean to get into the story of Christmas? One of the ancient Christian answers to this question is the season of Advent. The season of Advent. Advent's a period in the year where we center our imagination on Jesus Christ. Advent, from the Latin word adventus, it means coming. It's royal language, it's kingly language, and it refers to the coming of King Jesus, both back then, in first century AD, and in the future, where all of our hopes long that he'll make all things new. And to warm up us up for Advent, because it starts in two weeks, technically, according to the you know, classic church calendar, to warm us up, we're just starting our Christmas series two weeks out, just to get those engines turning, getting our hearts fixed on Jesus. In this series, we're going to spend six weeks just opening up the Gospels and talking about Jesus for six weeks. Each week, you'll hear a different part of the Gospel story. Maybe it's the birth of Jesus. Maybe it's the, the ministry of Jesus. Whatever it is, we're just going to focus in on Jesus. Why? Because here's what we want to do. We want to inhabit Advent by adoring King Jesus. That's what we want to do. And so to do that today... Just two brief points about the king who is Jesus. One, he's the king we always hoped for. And two, he's the king that we never expected. The king that we've always hoped for and the king that we've never, we never expected. It's number one, the king that we always hoped for. Think with me, I'm sure you do this all the time, about first century hope in Israel. <laughs> Just think with me for a moment about that. That'd be great. If you're a Jew... In first century Israel, hope was something very specific, very specific. The Jews, they were meant to be a people who lived in peace on top of Jerusalem with a king. They were meant to be people who represented God to the world, and they were meant to be a place through which God administered his blessing to the nations. That was the call. That was the vocation. That was the identity. That was the job description of Israel. And hope was the trust that one day there was going to be a king who'd come 
and liberate you from evil. That was the Jewish hope in first century Israel. And this is literally the entire point of the Old Testament story, to unpack this vocation, to unpack this story. It's to tell the story about a God who chooses a people to represent him to the world, so that through them he can bless the world and restore it to the beauty and the shalom and the flourishing and the love that he always intended from the beginning. It's like God in the Old Testament put a job advert out there. You know, I'm not sure whether God had seek.com back then. Really helpful these days. Makes most of us anxious, actually. But God puts a job advert out there, and he's waiting for someone to step into this role and so fulfill it that he would be able to bless the nations through a human. And every notable character in the Old Testament fails. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, every human in the Old Testament fails. God wanted a person that through whom he could administer his blessing to the world. No human, no king ever fulfills this vocation to be the one through whom he blesses the world. So here's the point of the Old Testament. Rather than God's people being the conduit he, through which he administers blessing, they become his greatest obstacle. That's the Old Testament story. And then, in the 6th century BC, the war machine of Babylon rolls through Jerusalem, destroys the city, exiles the Jews. Later, the Jews return, they rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, but they're never the same. Never the same. They never feel fully restored. They never feel fully at peace. There's always this hope. The prophets gave whispers to it. You got glimpses of it when people would rise up and seemingly do something helpful for the nation of Israel. Always this hope that there'd be a king who'd one day come and be the means through which God administered blessing to the world, being the Israel that they never could be. And this sense that they're God's people living in God's presence just sort of dissolves. And then the story finishes, and you're on this cliffhanger. And if you don't know anything about the Old Testament story of the Jews, just know this, it's an unfinished story. That's the point of the Old Testament. So here's the question the Old Testament finishes with. Where is the king who will liberate us? That's the contextual question. And we raise it right now because Christmas can be so confusing. But Jesus comes. And unless we view him through the story that we find in the scriptures, we won't view him rightly. Where is the king who will liberate us from evil? And then the writers of the gospel, they announce Jesus of Nazareth a real, historical, first-century figure. Chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew says this. This is how the birth of Jesus, the, the what? The Messiah, which is a Jewish term for anointed one, which is a catchphrase for king. This is how the birth of the king came about. And we'll stop it there. This is how the birth of the king came about. Jesus gets introduced as the long-awaited king. So pause here. What comes to mind when you think about Christmas? Here's what people think of typically in our culture when they think about Christmas. They bring to mind cute images of Jesus. I remember there was a movie released years ago, and I don't know if I would feel integrous mentioning it from up here, but it's Talladega Nights, and Ricky Bobby and his mate, they, talk, they like say grace before dinner, and they start praying, and they're like, dear little baby Jesus, and the next one says, dear little baby Jesus, and they start elaborating all these cute things about Jesus. And when Christmas comes around, this is typically what people think of when they think of Christmas and Jesus and God as king. It's, it's the baby in a manger, he's cute. We put him on the side of a mug, maybe write him in a Hallmark card. 
It's, it's cute, it's fluffy, and, and he's doing nothing for the world. He's doing nothing for the world in that state. Um, it's a domesticated Jesus. It's a tame Jesus. It's a Jesus that we can manage. And on one level, this part of the story is true, but don't mistake what Jesus came as for what he came for. And Matthew identifies it for us here. He came as king. He came as Lord. He came in the form of a baby. He came as a baby, actually. My theologically astute people would remind me. (laughs) Jesus came as a baby, but he came for the kingdom of God. He came in a way that we least expected it, which I'll talk about in the moment, but don't make any mistakes. He came for a reason, and that reason is that he would be king. Matthew identifies him as the Messiah. So think about it. Jesus showed that he had absolute authority over all creation in the gospel stories. He's healing people, he's casting out demons, he's showing his power over the cosmos. He announced a new order of religion which completely relativized, didn't undermine, but relativized the institutions of the Jews and made it such that God was now approachable, not through some Jewish institutions and only for the select few, but actually for everyone, universally available. Why? Through him. He announced a new order. He said that in his very person, the kingdom of God that not just Israel waited for, but the whole of humanity longs for deep down in the deepest recesses of our hearts and souls, the kingdom of God has come near in his person. He's the king. That's what he came for. A world-changing, people-healing revolution. And the gospel writers say, stop looking. We found our guy. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Come and see. Now, why is this good news? You know, I ask this question all the time. If the kingdom of God is the answer that the gospel writers give, what's the problem? Because that seems like there's a big disconnect. Here's why it's a disconnect. It's a disconnect because we're not first century Jews. We don't read the scriptures through the lens that they experience the story of. But we can unpack it. Here's why this is good news. A few years ago, I finally got around to reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. I know, it took me a long time. And in the second one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, it tells the story of the fight between Aslan and the White Witch. And Narnia, it's a world created by Aslan, he's a lion, but at the same time, it's a world that's under under the curse of the White Witch. And so what plays out in Narnia and in this movie and in, in this story is this classic fight between good and evil. You've got the evil of the White Witch, and you've got the goodness of Aslan. It's neat, it's tidy, you know who to go for, you know who to back. It's the story of good and evil. And all that needs to happen is that the white witch just needs to be overthrown. Now in the story, these four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, they, one day they stumble into this parallel, parallel world and they find themselves in Narnia. And the first time Lucy stumbles into Narnia alone and while she's there, she meets a fawn named Mr. Tumnus, God break our heart, and they become friends and they leave, and then she, they come back in a, as a, you know, a ragtag band of siblings, and they get into Narnia, and Mr. Thomas has been kidnapped by the White Witch the second time they come in. And because he's kidnapped, they start looking everywhere. They get into sort of conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver of Beaver Dam, if you need to know, and they, they, ask, they ask the beavers, they're like, is there any hope? Is there any hope? And Mr. Beavis, he's a bit of a pessimist, kind of like most husbands, and he's like, look, there's no hope. And then his wife's like, hold on, there's a bit of hope. And then he's like, actually, I'm going to agree with my wife. Yes, there is hope. And he says this. He says, 
There is hope. In fact, there's a great deal more than hope. Aslan's on the move. Now, if you don't know what that means, two things. One, read the book. <laughs> but two, it means that the creator and the rightful king of this world is coming back. And he's on the move. And we're getting glimpses because the snow's melting. We're getting whispers because people are flourishing and the flowers are budding. Aslan is on the move. In other words, the, the rule of the white witch should be overthrown soon. There's an expiry date for her. It wouldn't simply be Mr. Tumnus who would be liberated. Narnia itself would be liberated. Why? Because the king's back. So here's the good news. If Jesus is the human that no Israelite could ever be, remembering what Israel's vocation was, then he's not just the king they wanted, he's the king we all hope for. Why? Because in him, all healing and blessing and goodness and restoration and redemption can be found. If Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, if Jesus is the king of the Jews, he's not just that then. He's also the king of the cosmos. He didn't just come to liberate Israel, he came to heal the world. He's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's the king of the universe. And if he's the king of the universe, then let me boil this down, he can liberate you. He can liberate you. And so here's the question, first point, the king we've always hoped for, what are you, what's going on in your world right now? Just pause. Did you read the news this morning? Did you look out, sit for long enough, think for deep enough about the pain of the world, the brokenness of the world, the sin of the world, the evil of the world? What breaks your heart? This ministers to that. This speaks directly to it, not like a band-aid that'll cover it over and just get infested and wreak out havoc more in the future. This is an ultimate answer to the pain of the world. It's that God will come back and do away with all evil and make things new and beautiful again. But secular Westerners, we're so good at insulating ourselves from it. Like you go to the, you know, you go to the supermarket and we don't even butcher our own meat anymore. We just buy it in cling film plastic wrap for us and that's, you know, if you still eat meat, which is probably like 2% of us in the room. <laughs> we live in a Western democracy and we think that we experience libertarian freedom and we don't know what tyranny is and it feels good sometimes, right? You know, maybe you've got an ale, an ale something that ails you and you can medicate it or you've got some anxiety, and so you just stimulate it. Or you've got depression, or you, so you just distract yourself from it. There's all this technology, all this paraphernalia, all these cultural artifacts right now that exist to distract us from the pain of the world. We're insulated from it. Unless, of course, you're not. Unless, of course, you've sat for long enough to think deep enough about the pain of the world and the brokenness of humanity. Right now, there's a loneliness epidemic, and the Australian government's throwing heaps at it. It's not just an Australian thing, it's happening in the UK. My guess is it's probably happening in America as well. Since basically the invention of the iPhone, we've had a mental health crisis. And people still debate whether it's correlation or causation, but I know I want to be on my phone less. Some organisations estimate that there are between 38 and 40 million people caught in slavery worldwide still. And the metrics by which they sort of grade that change from organisation to organisation, but it's a staggering figure. At least 38 million people live below the line of what we would deem sort of a healthy, normal lifestyle. But what about you? Think about it. You've been the victim of some kind of evil. Have you not? Maybe on a macro level, but most definitely on a micro level. People in the room here probably were bullied when they were kids. 
People in the room here ever experienced great loss in their life, not just of loved ones, but of people that they thought they'd have a long time to care for. People in this room have got diagnosis that really scare them. The world's broken. It's messed up. And here's the, here's the good news. Jesus is coming back to restore everything, to make it all new. He's coming back so that one day he will say, no more, never again, I'm done with this. He's coming back as king because he wants to ultimately say that this won't last forever. That's the hope that we've always longed for. Not on God's watch, The promise of the Christian story is that God is a God of happy endings. He's like the OG Walt Disney, not because he gives everyone what they want, but because he makes everything ultimately right. This is the God we see. So let me just say this to us. Advent adores Jesus for being the king we always hoped for. And the claim of the New Testament writers is that what he began in his life, healing, showing his authority over, over creation, restoring people and loving the last, the lost, and the least. What he began in his life on this earth, he'll return to finish ultimately in the second. He's the king we always hoped for. Second, at the same time, he's the king we never expected. Bit of a gear change. He's the king that we never expected. I made the point before that what plays out in in the Narnia story is this classic fight between good and evil. It's neat and it's tidy. You can point out the good guys, you can point out the bad guys, and sometimes all of life feels like that. It's like, I'm a good guy, I haven't done much wrong, and it's all sweet, but those people, you know? And just think of those people. Don't think too hard. But it's neat and it's easy. Aslan's the epitome of good, the white witch is the epitome of evil. But it's not so simple in the story, if you remember. Earlier in the story, it's not just Lucy who stumbled into Narnia, it's Edmund as well. And when Edmund stumbles into Narnia, he has a sit-down with the White Witch, and the White Witch convinces Edmund that if he would only sell out his brothers and sisters, he could make a name for himself. And here's what happens in that conversation. He believes it. And what ensues in the story of Narnia is the sort of the human story, that there's these two narratives that play out. One narrative is the overarching objective simplicity of the evil of the white witch and the battle between her and Aslan. But the other narrative that lurks beneath the surface and sits there if you've got the eyes to see it, is the subjective interwoven thread of Edmund's desire to make a name for himself at the expense of his own family. And this is Lewis's brilliance. It shows us that the Pevensey family, kind of like Israel and especially like us, were not only meant to be the greatest means through which rightful kingship was restored to Aslan, they were also the greatest obstacle. Why? Because even though the curse of the white witch was obvious and there was an evil out there that we could name and cry and lament, there was also a bit of the white witch in everyone. And this is the tension that the New Testament picks up on when it starts to talk about the birth of Jesus. See, what's the question everybody has on their lips in ancient Israel? The question is, where is the king who will liberate us from evil? And the New Testament writers answer by saying, check him out, here's Jesus, here's the king. But what's the image that people expect that king to fulfill? And the image is of a warrior king who comes to overthrow Rome. And this is where Jesus says yes to the title, but no to their expectations. Here's the story. Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. Joseph and her were pledged to be married. So Joseph wants to divorce her because the only way she can get pregnant is if they both try, and they both hadn't tried up to that point, and 
so it'd be awkward otherwise, and he thinks that therefore she's an adulterer. And he goes to divorce her quietly. And then an angel appears to Joseph. This is, you know, I didn't make this up. An angel appears to Joseph and basically says, don't divorce her, she's not an adulterer. She's just carrying the divine son of God. Everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Sweet. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, this is strange. This is a strange story. Let's just shoot straight. It's, it's a story about an unmarried teenage girl's virgin conception of a baby boy. That's, that's really the Christmas story. A bit scandalous, really. But no Christian would deny that it's strange. The Christian claim is not that it's not strange. The Christian claim is that it's strangeness alerts the reader to the fact that something significant is about to happen. It's too embarrassing to include if we fabricated the story otherwise. The claim is that something magnificent is about to happen. And what is that? Well, it's in the announcement of the angel. Chapter 1, verse 21, the angel says this of the baby. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now back up, hear this. Jesus in Hebrew is Joshua. Joshua just means God saves. And so they hear the name Jesus and they're like, heck yeah, God saves. This is exciting. We've been waiting for this moment. But who are they expecting him to save them from? Rome. Or any other brutal empire that comes along. And that's kind of valid. You know, we can objectively say Rome was evil in some ways. The Pax Romana was a brutal death force. But he doesn't say, I'm just going to save you from Rome. He says, I'm going to save them from their sins. It's a scandal. Why? Because their response would be, I'm God's chosen nation. I'm God's people. I'm good. The problem is Rome. They're the bad ones. And God says this through the angel. He doesn't say, yep, you're right. God's on his way. Armor up. Let's overthrow the Romans. He doesn't say, no, I'm not coming in today. He says, I'm here, but I've come to deal with the evil inside of each of you. That's what God says to his people. In other words, Joseph was told this, that God's people are right to long for the dissolution of evil, but they are wrong to think that we're immune from it ourselves. That's the challenge of the Christmas story. See, there are times when we can cry out like the psalmist. If you've ever read the psalms, you'll know this to be true, and cry out against the evil and the brokenness and the decay of the world. That's a good thing. But we would be fooled to think that we don't play a part. That's the claim of the Christmas story. We can never do that without acknowledging that we're also part of the problem. It's always both. The Jews went wrong in thinking themselves immune from everyone else's evil. And the human problem has never just been the evil of one nation, which we might say is objectively unhelpful. <laughs> It's always been that every individual in every single nation has evil running right down the middle of their own hearts. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And the Christmas story, grounded in God's return in Jesus, is hope to that affliction. Why? Because it is the only thing that has an all-encompassing response. It says evil is not just the out-there reality which God wants to do away with, it is the internal predisposition to rebel against our vocation that God's given us, and God wants to melt it, forgive it, and atone it away. This is why the story of Jesus, Mike, our lead minister of New Life Family of Churches, said it this morning like this. He said, it's, it's a comfort and it's a confrontation, all at the same time. He says that each one of us are broken and sinful, but that each one of us is so precious to God that he reached out in the person of Jesus to save us from ourselves and win us to himself, 
that we might be reconciled to him. That's the story of Christmas. And being part of God's people comes not by pretending it that you've got it all together, but by acknowledging that you don't. That sure, there's an evil that we're afflicted by that we want God to deal with and it's broken and it's painful and our hearts cry out. But my hand's raised too. I'm part of the problem. So what do I want you to do today? I want you to look at this king. Like, look at him. He's confronting and comforting. He gives us a great compliment and a scary verdict, all at the same time. He's the king that we've always hoped for and that the deepest parts of ourselves ultimately long for. But he's also the king we never expected. You can't tame this Jesus. You can't box him in. You can't put him on a Hallmark card and leave him in the dusty drawer for next year. He's alive. He's well. He's risen. He's ruling and he's reigning. He's not just the king of the hearts of those who follow him. He's the king of the cosmos, and that means something. And so I want you to look at him today. I want you to see him. I want you to adore him. Because this king, he will one day do away with all brokenness, evil, sickness, suffering, death, and decay. But he's done something in his first coming. That means that when he comes to do away with evil, he doesn't have to do away with us. And what's that? He lived the life we should have. He died the death that we deserved. And he made it possible for us by grace just to come into a relationship with him, to be united with him, and to begin that journey of becoming the person that God, as individuals before him, has always intended for us to become. Followers of Jesus. He's the king we've always hoped for, and he's the king we never expected. I just want to read out some lyrics of a hymn writer as I close, and as I start reading that, I just want to invite the band to just jump up behind me. One hymn writer summarized it really well, and they said it like this. They said, seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. He's meek and lowly, he came as a baby. But then the next stanza says this, the royal guest you entertain is not of common birth, but second to the great I am, the God of heaven and earth. He's the king we've always hoped for, but he's the king we never expected. And the question I ask you today is this, do you know him? Do you know the king of the cosmos? And would you today want to make him the king of your own heart? I think there's two ways to boil this down in, in terms of response. You'll notice today that we had one song at the start of our service and then I started preaching and everyone's like, what's Alex doing? Don't we have three more songs or something? Typically, we, we structure our service in a way that we've got more songs on the start and less on the end. We were thinking as a bunch of location pastors about what it might mean for us to, I guess, hear the word of God preached and see worship as a response. Because worship, regardless of how we structure it, is always a response to the God who's singing over us, speaking to us, ministering to us. And so we just wanted to open up actually a larger portion of time to respond in worship on, on the other side of our service. Uh, and on Thursday night, we had a night called J35, um, taken from Joshua 3.5, which says, consecrate yourselves today for tomorrow the Lord will do great things. It's a night of worship and prayer, and we just come together as a church family and encounter the presence of God. And we had an awesome contingent from New Life Brisbane there actually with us. And Aaron led, and Lauren led, and Tristan was on drums. And it was a beautiful display of the handiwork of God in and through his people. And, but we encountered God together. And one thing we said on that night is that the way we encounter God in moments of 
ecstatic praise and adoration. They don't need to be one-offs. It can be all of life, and it can especially be this gathering here as a people. And so one response this afternoon is unashamed, unhindered, unabandoned adoration. And I would invite you, if you follow Jesus and you know this King, praise Him. Don't hold back this afternoon. Adore. And if you don't, the Bible just says that coming to follow Jesus looks like repentance and faith, turning from the life we lived previously into relationship with Him, empowered by His Spirit to live the life that He always made us. Repentance from the life we had and belief, wholehearted embodied allegiance to Him. And so if you don't know Jesus, you don't follow Jesus, I'll just invite you in this moment. There'll be people down the front. They can join with you in prayer and you can start that conversation, which hopefully would give birth to a life, which in turn would graduate and evolve into a full-fledged rhythmic habit following of Jesus. If you wanna start following Jesus today, I'd invite you to come down the front. I'll be there, Kath will be there and we'd love to pray with you. But as I close, adoration and repentance. What do you need to do today? Let me pray. Jesus, you're the king. And you came for us. And Lord, right now we just rest in that fact, but we want to do more than that, Lord. We want to experience that reality. Lord, for us here today who need to know you, deeper. I pray that you just by your spirit empower us, free us, liberate us. You're the great liberator. Liberate us to enjoy you, follow you, worship you. And Lord, for those of us here today who don't know you, I just pray, blow on us, Holy Spirit. Turn our heart towards Jesus. Thank you that you, through Paul, say it's the loving kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's your overflowing, generous goodness. That should cause us to sing and look at you and have a life changed. And so God, we just praise you that you're the king we always hoped for. And you're the king we never expected. And help us follow you in this upside down kingdom that we now call life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.